This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Blood Coast. Today is March 16th, 2023. I'm Scott Lundbo, and joining me is Stuart Prest. Stuart, welcome back. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here once again. Thanks for having me on. Welcome. Uh, Ian is traveling, so uh, you are graciously agreed to step up and uh, help round out the show. Uh, on today's show, we'll be looking at uh, the latest polling says in BC about uh, the new premier, some of the uh, recent announcements from the provincial government, and then what's happening in Ottawa with the uh, whole debate over whether or not there should be a public inquiry on foreign election interference. But uh, before that, quick reminder that uh, you can support the show and help keep us going by going to patreon.com slash Well, jumping into our BC corner, there is a new Angus Reid poll out looking at the premier approvals ratings across the country. David Eby currently sits at about 48% under their polling that uh, puts him around the same territory as uh, Tim Houston in Nova Scotia, who's at 51, and Danielle Smith in Alberta at 46. And... I don't have John Horgan's latest or last polling before he left, but that seems lower than uh, John Horgan has typically sat at through most of his time in office, um, which is a little notable. And when you look at the uh, breakdown on the approve, disapprove, moderately approve, a uh, significant chunk of the... Uh, Population is kind of sitting in the moderately approved category, around 36%, about the same as uh, last time. Not a huge chunk at the strongly approved, which only 13%, as well, not many in the strongly disapproved. So the uh, the general vibe on uh, David Eby is even as the unsures have dropped away, down down 10 points, the uh, the breakdown hasn't really changed all that much in relative proportion. Right. We, so we were seeing this uh, this pattern of, of British Columbians getting to know uh, Premier Eby. Uh, and uh, I just did some quick uh, Googling here, checking with Uncle Google, as my student uh, referred to it today in class. Uh, and it looks like uh, Mr. Horgan left office with about a 51% approval rating. So this is... Uh, uh, pretty much on a par with where Mr. E.B. is coming in. So, and that, uh, that makes sense insofar as Mr. E.B. has tried to uh, signal continuity in some big ways with the, uh, the, the previous government. But at the same time, it's, it is interesting to see that as the, the undecideds are, are uh, getting to know Mr. E.B., they are tending to break a little more against than in favor of. So we see that uh, the, uh, the rate of uh, those who disapprove of the premier is growing just a little bit faster than the, uh, the, the rate of those who approve or moderately approve. And, and so 
Uh, I think it's indication of a, a, an electorate that is that is settling in and perhaps getting a little tired of of the NDP government in some ways. But certainly, we don't see any kind of groundswell of uh, opinion uh, indicative of uh, an imminent change in the polarity of the province. The NDP still seems at majority uh, approval or close to it. Yeah, which of course has uh, led to everyone's favorite activity in Victoria, which is. Early election speculation. Uh, the premier was asked yet again uh, this week uh, on whether or not he's committed to the fixed election date and whether it's an early election. Uh, he says yes to the first and no to the second that uh, there's not going to be an early election. Of course, no politician ever says there is going to be one before, but uh, it would not make a huge amount of sense to me for. Uh, there to be one at this point in time. But uh, that doesn't stop the Victoria Press Gallery from uh, running rampant with their uh, favorite topic of uh, speculation. Yeah, and we have heard some of that speculation at times from the opposition as well. I think uh, it serves the opposition's interest to to suggest that an, an, an election may be imminent. It helps with fundraising. It helps keep keep minds sharp and, and, and folks uh, uh, with their eye on the prize to think that uh, this all could come to an end and they'll be back on the, the hustings uh, any moment now. But I think in terms of the actual evidence, the, the only concrete evidence that I have heard that suggests that the government would be thinking of that is the the ramping up of uh, advertising campaigns, radio spots from the, the NDP caucus and, and, and so on, really particularly focusing on the, the premier. Uh, and I think that is that is out there, but I think that is much more easily explained by that idea of uh, we were just discussing Mr. Eby having to introduce himself to the, the province as as premier. He's, he's known to the, those who watch politics closely as the former attorney general and the, the minister for everything of the of, of the, the, the Horgan time in office. But now he's he's the face of this government. And so that's a different role. It's a much more high profile role. And so it makes sense that the party would want to to get that get those ads out now to try to set that narrative now to help british columbians understand how to to view this this new leader and so i think those ads are easily explainable from from that perspective and beyond that the only thing we're hearing in terms of the speculation is speculation that well they're close to majority support so they pulled the trigger before why not now and i can think of a lot of reasons why not now yeah i mean most obviously is that this time they have a majority government, so they don't actually have anything to gain by going to the polls. They're probably, if anything, would maybe lose one or two of the edge seats they picked up last time uh, on that because the uh, the gap isn't quite as big, I don't think, as uh, foreign vote intention. And just why run? Why risk changing things when you have a solid majority government? There's no internal pressure from the caucus, really, that's uh, seeping out on anything. And you can just keep governing, which seems to be what David Eby actually wants to do, rather than uh, spend his time running around the province trying to get votes. And yeah, they'll probably win this election if they were to call it uh, right now, but what would be the point you best case scenario they have another majority government but uh that means the end of that one is now a year or two earlier than it would be otherwise 
Right. So the the end result might be reducing the overall time NDP time in office. If they, every government has a, a best before date, and so there will be a time when the NDP likely loses an election. And if you call this election, uh, even if you win it, just as you say, you may then lose the next one, which becomes that much earlier. But beyond that, I think there is this the sense, just as you mentioned, I think if you look at Mr. Eby as a, as a leader, it's it's pretty clear what gets him out of bed, what fires him up is not being out there campaigning and trying to to, to win votes. He is there to try to use the power to the of government to try to to introduce changes in in the the province. And if you agree with the direction of the province, you'll say that's a good idea. And if not, then you'll be waiting for that next election. But he is there to use the power of the government as as it is currently. Uh, available to him and then to go at the time that is currently scheduled to make the case on the basis of what he has done as leader since uh, Mr. Horgan left the stage to say this is why I should be returned to office. He doesn't live to campaign as we we see some more retail-oriented politicians. Uh, uh, that's not that's not his thing, I don't think. No, it's definitely not the vibe he gives off. So yeah, the press i'm sure will continue to speculate i expect we'll have some version of this question asked in another couple weeks and the answer is probably going to be the same then and we'll just have to go through it because that is just the nature of a bunch of reporters hanging around uh the ledge all the time needing something to uh to talk about i guess that's right. And beyond all the arguments in terms of the, the, the political calculations, there is the fact that this government has now been unambiguous saying there will be an election in 2024 and not before. So to break that crystal clear promise, it's not like they said, I'm, I'm, Mr. Eby hasn't said, I'm focused on the job in front of me right now, or I have no intention at this moment to go on an election. It was pretty unambiguous. So so to, to wait on the election is it a moment to say promise made, promise kept, and to to do otherwise is to to go to the polls having broken one of your very first promises to the electorate and, and it, just in general there's there's a sense that if you in, step into the docket and, and invite the invite the judgment of the population you should not be surprised when it comes against you good and hard I and mean, that's what happened to john turner and it, it happened to uh, to other leaders along the way it's a gamble and sometimes gambles go wrong and i don't think uh we have any sense from from mr eby and the ndp that they're interested in that kind of gamble yeah, because uh, uh, what was it Peterson in Ontario back in the day went into an election with uh, a pretty solid footing and ended up losing his government as a result. And yeah, y you never know what a campaign's actually going to bring. So why roll the dice when you don't have to? Yeah, pretty much. Well, one of the things the NDP is doing between elections is approving new LNG projects. So this week it was announced that the uh, Cedar LNG up near uh, Kitimat, BC has received its environmental approval. So yeah, this uh, $3 billion project located up near Kitimat, uh, it's powered by hydroelectricity, but is going to be a major natural gas export uh, facility. And it it's going to be connected up to the uh, somewhat controversial Coastal GasLink uh, pipeline on there. Uh, this was announced concurrently with uh, some new policy regarding uh, an energy framework to cap emissions in BC that's going to require all L proposed LNG facilities uh, 
entering in or entering into the environmental assessment process to pass an emissions test with a credible plan to be net zero by 2030 and puts in place regulatory caps on the the sector. So this is an interesting file in all sorts of ways. It it continues to be evidence of the NDP's commitment to a sort of Goldilocks approach to environmental action, where on the one hand, they introduce a variety of incentives and so on through the Clean BC program. There is a, a maintenance of the, the carbon taxes to try to, to keep the net growth of, of emissions in the province in, in check, and yet at the same time continues to pursue a strategy of job creation uh, through the support for LNG facilities. And, uh, and so you can... You see how it is an issue where they may see uh, an advantage over say, the BC Liberals, where the BC Liberals are unlikely to be stronger advocates for environmental stewardship and, and be against a pipeline. They would say, why not more faster pipelines? And as long as the, the Greens don't seem to be mounting any serious challenge, then then the NDP has this free room to, to maneuver. But, but we do know just in terms of the the calculations of, of trying to to reduce the overall uh, growth of, of carbon emissions is starting to to bend that curve downward. Every time you increase those those emissions, even if it is a comparatively cleaner burning fuel like LNG, you're still pushing out the 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 moment at which if you if you're doing that instead of of moving towards a a, a renewable resource based economy, the the point at which the the uh, carbon the carbon curve of the the, the world starts to bend downward. So you have this this real tension there, and uh, uh, on top of that, we have issues of, of reconciliation uh, to deal with, where we have. Uh, uh, Indigenous communities in this case and supporting the, the the pipeline project, and so the province can say they are effectively in uh, acting in the interest of, of reconciliation because they're supporting an, an indigenous led indigenous supported project, but that that would still be in some ways controversial you for for those who want to rather see the pipeline projects uh, um, come to an end and to see the economy moving in a different direction we'll talk about the uh, how indigenous groups are often um, compelled to to pursue an engine uh, energy type projects and so on and uh, resource extraction projects simply because there are very few other options available to them to provide support for their communities and any any governing body any any um, uh, community leadership has to ensure that they're able to provide for the uh, the the economic interests of their people and so so you have all these different interrelated uh, tensions on these types of issues and so it is a fascinating one to watch and uh, it's the kind of decision that is going to leave uh, a whole host of people disappointed for one reason or another yeah i don't think the uh ndps managed to have an lng decision that has been universally praised Yep, because it is one of those really tough uh, files where not everyone is going to be happy. And uh, this being Indigenous-owned and led really can't be underemphasized as part of the dynamic on all of this. And it's going to put a lot of cross-cutting pressures uh, on the NDP's coalition on all of this. And we've seen something similar happen with Ferry Creek over the past... uh, couple years regarding the login there but yeah a lot of indigenous uh nations are looking at how can they develop and provide for their uh communities and nations and 
like a lot of BC's economic history, that path partly goes through resource development. And particularly once you get away from the major cities, that is really the economic path to prosperity because you're not going to be setting up, say, a manufacturing facility in Kinemat of any real scale because there's a whole bunch of other factors that don't lend it don't lend towards being that practical a a path for development but there will also definitely be a cohort that will look at uh, this and see this is part of the path of reconciliation and having a bunch of people in a far-off provincial capital tell them no you can't uh invest in your community and pursue economic development is also not great I think another way to, to phrase it might be there, absent the the alternative economic opportunities for, for communities, there um, it becomes a dilemma for those who uh, would support an environmental uh, agenda and, and be disappointed in this decision. I think the way that that opposition would be framed would be to say that uh, there is uh, the the government ought to be finding ways to provide opportunities and, and economic support for for those communities so that there isn't a, a need to to continue to uh, exploit or or, or otherwise uh, um, damage the, the the natural environment and I think uh, that's it. It's, it's, it's diff- easier said than done. Though. Well, it's easier right. said than done, and it does come up against this is- an issue of uh, of independence uh, of uh, of self governance where um if 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 it even if it is a, a government funded community we uh, we can see how that that can fall down creating uh cycles of dependency and uh, and and so to try to really uh take reconciliation seriously i think means really taking seriously the idea of of finding ways to empower communities to to find ways to to govern themselves and to, to to develop in in the manner of their own choosing and and that has to be part of a larger conversation uh, regarding things like an environmental environmental impact but 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 also self-governance so you have to take seriously that concept of self-governance and i think it's something that we still struggle with as a country yeah like bc in particular was very much built in a lot of ways on resource extraction forestry has been huge here mining's been huge in the province and more recently lng has taken on that role and you know it's not exactly great to take all the land spend 100 plus years doing resource development and then turn around and say no you can't do this so there's definitely a, an element of uh reconciliation and, and just fairness on that um for sure and there's this is going to be a long-term project but there's also you know geopolitical considerations on this i'm not sure it's necessarily weighed heavily on the environmental assessment part but uh you know we're over the last year we've seen how having our allies be less dependent on hostile powers energy sources has some benefits and uh germany bunch of german representatives were here in canada a few months ago looking at possible uh lng deals to uh help deal with their need to move off russian gas and it doesn't really change the climate uh aspect of it but it 
there are some serious uh, factors that need to be considered there because it, there are also consequences for Canada if our allies end up having to bend to pressure on uh, energy blackmail. I am pretty skeptical LNG from Canada will ever make its way to Germany. I think the, the challenges are, the logistical challenges are significant, but but it is a, a point taken that there is a, uh, the the politics of, of energy are are global in scope. You know, I think um, if <laughs> the drum I'm I like to bang on on that that point of view is just energy. Energy independence is a security issue, but that doesn't have to be uh, realized realized through nat- natural gas. There are other ways that countries like Germany can can meet their energy needs, and I think uh, a country like that needs to to continue to, to pursue a, a renewable and, and nuclear agenda. To be honest, um, that's where I think Germany ought to go. But uh, but this is taking us further afield from the, this immediate decision. I think one last point to say is it, it, it the. The, one of the real challenges here in terms of of, of taking self-government seriously if for, for Indigenous peoples is to allow conversations to happen among Indigenous communities where the government is not the sole convening power. We see Indigenous communities uh, internally divided and, and there are there are differences among different communities and, and finding ways to for to support those conversations without simply directing them or cherry picking them, I think is a is a a worthwhile goal for for governments across the country and BC in particular to think about how can they really do that more effectively without simply leading. It's hard. Well, moving on to another uh, reconciliation focused uh, announcement is uh, this week the was announced that the portions of the island rail corridor on Vancouver Island are going to be returned uh, to the Snarnoa as probably butchered that uh, First Nation uh, near Nanus. Uh, th- this is the a portion of the defunct rail corridor that used to have train service running up and down the island. I believe that closed around 2011 and. Since then, there has been legal action taken to by the First Na- uh, Nation to recover their uh, portions of their land from this disused rail track. The courts basically said, if you're, you're not using it, it doesn't need to go back. And at this point, there has not been enough proset- progress towards actually regaining the use of the quarters, and therefore the lands are reverting. Um, it does mean that any future use of the the rail corridor and any refurbishment is probably going to be limited in the to the Nanaimo to Victoria stretch. That said, that's probably the most uh, useful section still, although um, significant work would need to be done in order to bring that up to... Uh, to a serviceable condition, the the rail line actually got shut down in large part because it was not maintained in a good enough state to uh, to use. Well, this is another environment and reconciliation uh, cross cutting issue to an extent. Although I think uh, it it makes it pretty clear that sometimes it, it's uh, um, 
not hard for the government simply to to find a way to to do the right thing when it comes to to recognizing a, a indigenous uh, land claims, and so so we do see that uh, um, uh, the, the Snownawas uh, First Nation has been successful in in making this claim and and there may yet be interest in in, in developing it in, in cooperation with the British Columbia government but but again uh, taking a step back and allowing the the this process of, of returning land of, of rendering land back is, is something that we can act on and we can do um, fairly fairly quickly when we put our mind to it it shouldn't always have to go to a a, a court uh, process like like we saw in this case uh, it, there there is an opportunity for the the BC government I think to be much more uh, assertive or even aggressive in simply resolving these issues you can you can you can see what the right thing is to do when when the land is uh, when the, the there are obvious land claims and simply uh, acknowledging that and moving on it makes um i think it's a more satisfying thing for us to be doing than simply saying uh land acknowledgements and not really seeing anything else happen after after we acknowledge the the unseated nature of the land just to continue on as if nothing else has changed i think this is this is more substantive and i think rail rail aficionados will be sad to see this uh not turn back into a, a railway line but as you say it is uh, it, lack of demand was one reason why it, it declined and i uh, i think uh, this is uh, um another area in which um it would be great for the bc government to 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 find ways to support mass transit but but this need not be part of that particular solution yeah um so from my understanding it's probably unlikely that uh after the land has been transferred it's going to have a future use at any point as a rail corridor uh i was chatting with a friend who's done some uh consulting planning and uh, economic development consulting work around there and what he was saying is that the corridor caused significant headaches uh due to how it uh bisected the uh uh lands there so it's unlikely that they would want to necessarily bring it back into rail use but and that, uh i mean that's yeah. our prerogative too Part? yes exactly um yeah nevertheless it uh yeah hopefully we can see the rest of the line get uh refurbished and used uh, it's noted in the cbc article that this is actually one of the strongest corridors in the province for uh, future for rail use uh, on there so yeah hopefully but uh, it's going to be the case where a lot of work get is needed and there's been uh, mixed feelings to say the least about actually investing the amount of money needed to restart that and multiple governments have looked at that no one's really moved the ball forward so yeah absent that uh, Land's better used elsewhere, and it advances reconciliation. More power to them. Uh, and final uh, note from BC is the uh, government has announced they're extending their outdoor patio permitting licenses. Uh, this was the pandemic era measure. They're continuing the program of that. The 
temporary expanded service areas will uh through till December 31st, 2024. At some point they should just make the thing permanent. Um on there, but uh yeah, good. Um nice to see. It's a little shame it took the pandemic to uh bring this around, but uh it has notably improved the quality of life in a lot of cities and just the quality of the outdoor spaces, and it would be uh good to see that uh it's good to see this announcement and hopefully it uh has even more long term uh benefits afterwards and uh that deadline is uh once again extended out mm-hmm. not been nice to see that at least uh one nice legacy has endured from from the pandemic Moving on to our other main segment, uh, an update and kind of discussion on the ongoing uh, saga in Ottawa around allegations of foreign interference and whether or not there needs to be a public inquiry on this. Uh, So last week it was announced that there was going to be a special rapporteur. Some of that I think will strike most Canadians as a, ha, never heard of that before. Um, who would be a who would be an eminent Canadian appointed to figure out if an inquiry was needed? Uh, this week it was announced that uh, David Johnson, the former Governor General, would uh, be doing that. I guess they couldn't find a retired Supreme Court justice uh, for it, um, and that yeah, he was going to review the materials and make a determination that. The prime minister has said he will follow on this. Yeah, it, uh, it is interesting to, to to consider the term special rapporteur just for a second. It's not the normal language that we hear in Canada. It's associated with UN proceedings quite often. Uh, it's something that the secretary general will appoint to to go and investigate uh, when there's allegations of, say, human rights violations or potential breach of international law. Somebody come back and report to 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 the 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 head cheese and or the big cheese and uh, and then there would be a recommendation to the security council that's how a special rapporteur often would operate so in this case it seems like there's uh, a desire to to get some fa- facts found before uh deciding whether to do a more uh typically Canadian thing like uh, have a public inquiry or a royal commission. Seems like public inquiry would be the more likely course. And at that point, I think you would be seeing a a, a justice of uh, some kind or other, whether retired or otherwise, in charge of the thing. But this is a effectively an initial screening process and perhaps an opportunity to buy the government a little bit of time to to line up exactly how they want to handle the issue. I think it's pretty clear that the the Trudeau government was not ready to handle this. And I don't think they initially handled it terribly well by by essentially trying to to minimize the the severity of the allegations and to try to to uh, uh, avoid any uh, uh, rapid action to response to to respond to the allegations that have been surfacing in the media uh, when associated with the leaked uh, uh, CSIS reporting. Yeah, in fact, if they had wanted to make the story blow up, they really could not have handled it uh any better and that's what's i think so notable about this is you know when we first heard the reports and ian and i were mentioned it several weeks back on the pod i think our take was largely eh, this is like not good canada should actually do something about this and there needs to be something done um 
it would be good for the government to take it seriously, but like, yeah, probably not. Um, uh, like probably the case that there was some interference didn't really change the course of an election. You know, the government, yeah, maybe didn't take it quite as seriously as it should, but like, it's not a huge, it's not as big as it has blown up into. And the very clear disinterest in further public review and um the lack of any real effort to assuage canadians on this or provide kind of any independent look at this and the uh just general attempts to dodge any real discussion or accountability on this has actually i think increased a lot of people's suspicions on this including myself on it because if it is if it was a fairly minor thing like why isn't the government so or why isn't the government wanting to actually just clear the air on this if there isn't something else that's potentially a, a bigger bombshell hiding in there I think the simple answer to that is they just weren't ready to respond one way or another. And so they uh, employed a typical strategy of uh, from uh, government, governments under pressure, hoping an issue will go away, which is to to try to minimize it. And, and particularly if they think it might be used as a, a partisan um, stick by the opposition. Uh, and certainly we did see the opposition do exactly that. Uh, but but uh, there's there's a problem or there's a difficulty in having this conversation and there's a difficulty in, in avoiding this conversation. And I think we are uh, unfortunately experiencing uh, both those effects simultaneously in the way in which this, this issue has, has played out. Effectively, there's a, a problem in avoiding this conversation because it leads people to, to doubt the legitimacy of the Canadian electoral system. If you think that your government maybe uh, was elected, uh, not definitively, but even in part by through the support of a, a foreign actor, then you may come to, to doubt both the the authenticity of the legitimacy of that election and also the the actions of that government. It can can be a way to taint the uh, the way in which people view government, and and that would be the same as if there is some sort of interference. But, or or uh, uh, inappropriate activity by by another domestic actor, but when it's a, a foreign government, then it is something that is clearly outside the the, the polity. It is outside the the community that is is uh, supposed to be represented by that government. And making this even more complicated, that it may not be illegal, but it is certainly seen as being undemocratic and inappropriate. And so. Uh, not talking about that just erodes our, our trust in democracy. But the way in which the conversation can often play out, and we are seeing evidence of this as well, is that it can create an atmosphere of suspicion that can hover over uh, Chinese Canadians as a community and even Asian Canadians more broadly. Uh, as the uh, part of these allegations is that the, the Chinese state is attempting to influence that that community in particular in trying to, to do so through a variety of strategies, everything from uh, putting out uh, information on on uh, Chinese language social media or or through uh, Chinese language media uh, regular regular media or um, 
through more targeted uh, strategies looking at uh, particularly influential members of the community. And so you can hear reports from members of the, the Hong Kong diaspora community talking about the, the fear they live under where their their uh, loved ones back in, in China or in Hong Kong uh, are, they feel that they may be under threat. And so, so that's a, a difficult situation for people to be put into. So on the one hand, feeling pressure, uh, political influence, the other hand, having this, this lack of, of trust uh, regarding the, the community as a whole within broader Canadian society, all because we haven't had this, this conversation in a forthright but careful and empathetic manner. And, and so this is why I think a special rapporteur is not a wrong step, but it may be too little too late that we, we have already sort of lost the, the moment to have a, a nonpartisan, fulsome discussion about the idea of interference in our, our elections. And it's clearly something that affects both parties. We have allegations that in previous elections going back to 2015, something similar was happening with, with cons- some conservative MPs as well. And so this is an issue that transcends party. It's also an issue that transcends the level of government. Just today we had news breaking that there was some sort of... Uh, 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 CSIS report regarding interference in the municipal election last year. And so we're having a version of that, of the potential uh, questioning of the, not the legitimacy of the outcome of the election, but but this, the sense that somebody was uh, opposed by the Chinese state, in this case, Kennedy, uh, Kennedy Stewart, and then and, and someone else won uh, as a result. And so that, not directly as a result, but but it's just sort of casting aspersions. And, and so Ken Sim, who who is of uh, from the, the Asian Canadian community, uh, is then under this, this cloud. And, and even more particularly, one of the, the counselors in Vancouver, Lenny Tsu, is, is now uh, coming in for, for additional scrutiny as potentially being being influenced by the Chinese state. And so this is really uncomfortable position for, for politicians to, to be in on any point. So I think it's really important that everybody turn down the temperature here and we really try to move away from a partisan approach to the issue and and talk about what is what is valid about the allegations and, and what is not, and, and then look for how we can act as a society, whether that means Moving to to create registries so that if you are advocating on behalf of a foreign government, uh, you there is a registration process as there is with other kinds of advocacy or other measures that that may be taken. We we really need to have that conversation. We need to have it in this careful, empathetic way, and we are doing none of those things right now. Yeah, there's a couple of really important points there. I just want to highlight. Uh, first is that uh, it is the Chinese Canadian community that are the biggest victims here. Um, because of like they are the ones being directly pressured and influenced by the uh, CCP, and that shouldn't be forgotten about. It, it also means the early tactic of suggesting that uh, any discussion of this was somehow racist was a bad move on the liberals' part. I think obscures more than it helps on a lot of this stuff. Um, you you can obviously have cases where communities are brought under suspicion, but seeing as they are also uh, the ones who are most affected and have been for a long time asking for more support from the government on dealing with uh, those sorts of threats of their um, towards them and attempts to influence them, like, there's definitely a uh, a need to take that very seriously and recognize that. <clears throat> and yeah, the the other thing is that. Like, this is the real danger. Here, I don't think is necessarily 
any particular uh, any particular election outcome uh on this like maybe a seat or two flipped and like that shouldn't happen um but like some of the very like marginal seats that changed hands it's not good but like the overall election outcome is not meaningfully different than it probably would have been absent um the alleged activities that had been undertaken here but the real long-term danger is that it undermines canadians confidence in democracy and our system and that is where there really does need to be this very clear and transparent ways to like get to the bottom of this find out what needs to change and just kind of reassure canadians and Unfortunately, the way the government has handled it so far has been pretty much to do the exact opposite of that and not come out quickly with you know, the size of action to say, yeah, we're we're taking this seriously. We're going to get to the bottom of this and we're going to make important changes right away. The, the What has been communicated by then through the various statements and perhaps more importantly, their actions throughout all of this, um, such as efforts to block the uh, PM's chief of staff from being called before uh, parliamentary committee to provide testimony on this, is that it looks like the government doesn't want to talk about this and isn't wanting to actually uh, seriously look at the issue and address any of the concerns. And the real problem with that isn't that, okay, next election, we probably won't patch the problems with some of our donation, uh, political donation laws to deal with the issue that uh, has been highlighted here. The real problem is that it contributes to this undermining of our institutions and whatnot. And that is, if anything, far more corrosive than um, the fact that some money may have been inappropriately funneled to a few candidates. Uh, still bad, but like the much greater long-term danger is this contributes to that loss of faith in our elections and our democracy. And that is something that the PM's position really gives them, I think, a much greater responsibility than any of the other players in this, although all, all the players need to um be responsible in how they handle it but the pm in particular just being in that leadership position very much needs to convey a sense of institutional legitimacy on all of this um and that the the apparatus of the government is doing everything it can to maintain and make sure things are working the way they need to work and that just hasn't come through at all. Yeah, the prime minister is the primary mover here. They, uh, um, Mr. Trudeau has to do something, uh, and he's really the only one who can who can initiate that process. And I, I wouldn't let the opposition off the hook by any means. I don't think Mr. Polyev's approach here by finding reasons to call uh, former Harper appointee, uh, former Governor General David Johnson, a liberal hack is. I don't think a, a great approach a, either. That's a, a bit, bit of a reach. stretch, but bit of a reach. But yeah, that said, there there are um there are some I think legitimate concerns. There are maybe maybe legitimate concerns isn't quite the right term. So yeah, 
like he I don't think he's a partisan hat. There's very little evidence of that at all. Um, but once again, going back to the kind of things not just need to be above board, but they need to appear to be above board because so much of the issue and the thing that really needs to be fixed is the public perceptions and confidence in this. And um, the fact is, the former governor general and the Trudeau family are fairly close. He's uh, being affiliated with the uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, uh, which is one of the organizations that has been named in this whole affair and whatnot. And well, I have very little reason to believe he's going to be swayed as a result of that. There, sh there shouldn't even be the question out there. And in that respect, it was yet another mishandling of this whole affair by the PM. I think it was an impossible job. I think Mr. Johnson would have done himself a favor by declining the invitation. I don't think I don't think anyone would have been able to do um, to fulfill the, the the role. I think even if they had appointed, um, let's say Ben Harper agreed to do it, they would find a tie between Ben Harper and the Liberal Party. I think uh, it's uh, uh, it's a, a thankless, impossible job because it is uh, attempting to avoid the inevitable, which is a, a fulsome in, inquiry into this. Uh, into into the issue one that is nonpartisan that is beyond the control of of either the opposition or or the the PMO and and such a thing is maybe very difficult to to uh, arrange but a public inquiry is the closest we're we're going to get to to that and even then I wouldn't be surprised if we start to hear about the allegations of connections between the the justice appointed and uh, in one side or another it's a polarized environment and so. Um, uh, once once you get into that situation, it's hard to get yourself out of. And I think uh, um, we th it's another reason why uh, delaying action is, is is simply going to to make it harder to take once once uh, once the government uh, convinces itself of the need to do so. Yeah, like that's the thing that strikes me about all this is like there really does seem to be only one end to this, which is some form of a full on public process on this. And, you know, maybe it's probably not going to be a public process that involves, say, the release of the uh, underlying intelligence or something, but something that is very, like, nonpartisan, transparent, as it can be under the circumstances and everything. And it eventually is going to have to get there just to deal with the, the basic public perception issues and confidence of the Canadian public issues that we've talked about. And the longer this drags out, the worse it is for all of that. The harder it becomes to actually fix those issues because it has had a chance to linger. The worse the prime minister and everyone looks on this. And just it just seems like bad strategy to, to drag out the inevitable rather than just trying to get to the obvious endpoint as quickly as possible and save everyone both the headache and the like continual daily bleeding on the part of the uh the government mm -hmm. anything else uh, i think it's going to get worse before it gets better i think we are in a difficult conversation and it's going to be a, a new reality i think uh 
the Chinese state is not doing itself any favors here. That's worth saying as well. Um, and they are not doing their own people any favors. Uh, they're not doing uh, Chinese Canadians any favors by creating this atmosphere of distrust and mistrust uh, in the pursuit of narrow uh, short-term influence. They are uh, doing significant, lasting, perhaps irreversible damage to, to their reputation in, in every country that they are trying to, to develop a, a working uh, and influential relationship with. And I don't think that ends well. We have seen other superpowers try to do that over time. We forget just how popular the United States was once upon a time. It was seen as the most popular country in the world. It was the country that other countries wanted to emulate. It's not an accident that when you go and tour Latin America, most of the uh, legislature buildings look like facsimiles of the, the Capitol in Washington. It's because they were trying to cap copy the Capitol in Washington. And that is they, just... Uh, yeah, they also copied their presidential systems and yeah. ran into a whole bunch of problems with Right. Yeah, and not, not saying that was the best idea to do, but but it was seen as a, a model worthy of emulation. It held out a promise that the the old world of Europe did not have. And, and so it was seen as an, an inspirational example. And yet uh, the U.S. over the, the decades in its attempts to to influence outcomes in, in countries around the world has seen that reputation degrade over time. And now it is viewed with a huge amount of distrust wherever you go in the world, except uh, maybe Poland. There's like a couple of places where that's not true. But the vast majority of states, that reputation is not uh, is not once what it was. And it's largely because of uh, efforts uh, to to meddle in the internal affairs of other countries. And now China's going down that exact same road and it's it's not going to end up well. Indeed. Well, Stuart, uh, thanks for uh, joining me today and uh, stepping in and filling in for uh, Ian, who should be back next week. It's always a pleasure, anytime. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.